Our Father, we thank you this morning for this privilege to be together and to share in your word. Uh, we are so thankful for your word, for what it does in our lives, for the way it teaches us and directs us and encourages us and corrects us. We thank you for its power. We thank you that it has the ability to change us. We pray, Father, that you'll open our minds to understand your truth in this passage. And to be encouraged by what you do through your church, even in the midst of great, great persecution. As always, Lord, we are grateful for the salvation you have provided for us through your son's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Thank you that he, the innocent one, died for we, the guilty. He, the sinless one, took our sin upon his body and paid the penalty and took the wrath of sin upon himself so that by believing in him, by putting our trust in him, not ourselves, not religion, not religious ritual, but putting our trust in him alone, we can have eternal life, we can be a part of your family, we can pass from death to life. There's even one who has yet to trust Christ in our service today or was here in the first service. We pray that they might trust your son, Jesus. For those of us who have, we pray that we might walk more closely with you each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into Acts chapter 8, the setting for Acts chapter 8 is the stoning of Stephen, which we studied last week at the end of chapter 7. The stoning of Stephen led to a wider persecution of the church, which resulted in the expansion of the church. The stoning of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, led to an expansion of the church. What we're seeing in chapter 8, that the church is persecuted, but the church grows. The church is persecuted, but the church grows. The main point, you might say, of chapter 8, verses 1 to 25 is this. Persecution leads to to proclamation, proclamation leads to the progress of the gospel. That is, it grows and the church grows. Proclamation, persecution rather, leads to proclamation. Proclamation causes growth. It leads to the progress of the gospel. Now we're going to encounter a couple of things as we look at Acts chapter 8 verses 1 to 25. We're going to see how God overrules evil for good. And God often does that. God often does that for the church. He often does that in your life and in my life. He overrules evil for good. A second thing we're going to see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25 is this, that God will take us out of our comfort zone. Don't you just love that, right? 
God will take us out of our comfort zone. That's what he's doing here with the early church. That's what he's doing with the persecution. That's what he's doing with the scattering of the church to places they never would have guessed that they would go. In our passage today, we see Philip. We're, we're uh, honing in on Philip, one of the seven who were chosen to wait on tables to take care of the widows and the distribution of food to the widows. We're going to see Philip's ministry in Samaria. Now, what's significant about ministry in Samaria? The Jews had no interaction with the Samaritans. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. If you want an Old Testament illustration of that, think of Jonah when God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to those people. Wait a second, God. Those people want to kill us. They want to wipe us out. They want to wipe Israel off the map. You want me to do what? That's right, go to Nineveh. So instead of going east, Jonah does what? He goes west. In fact, he got on a ship to take him as far as you could possibly go west in that day. Why did he do that? Because he didn't want to see the Ninevites saved. He didn't want to see the enemies of God's people saved. He knew that God was a good and gracious God. And if they repented, He would save them. So He said, no thanks God, I'll take another job when you offer me one that doesn't get me out of my comfort zone. Isn't that the way you and I are? Lord, I'll do anything You want as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. And so, a second thing we're going to see is that God will take us out of our comfort zone. That's what He's doing. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. We'll see why as we get into this passage. And yet, Philip takes the Gospel to hated Samaritans that had to take him and the others out of their comfort zone. You and I need that often because I got to tell you I don't know about you but I like being comfortable in control nothing shaking my tree well God will take us out of our comfort zone many times and we see that in this passage the third thing we're going to see here is we've got to be alert to what's real and what is counterfeit. We've got to be alert to what is real and what is counterfeit. Oh, we'll get into it. Let's, let's jump into chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. This is kind of the introduction here. The first part of chapter 8, verse 1, actually belongs with the previous section where Stephen is martyred. Saul's name was mentioned in verse 58 of chapter 7. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's mentioned once again now in chapter 8 and verse 1, the first part of it, and Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Saul was there giving approval to 
to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began, here's Saul again, But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. On the very day that Stephen is martyred, a great persecution broke out against the church. And all except the apostles, and we don't know why the apostles weren't bothered, we don't know why they left them alone, But all except the apostles were driven out of Jerusalem. Driven into Judea and Samaria. Now I want you to see something interesting here. Do you remember what God said to them? What Jesus said to them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? If you don't, please turn there. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Is that it? No. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God's method of fulfilling Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is to allow the persecution of His people so that they might leave Jerusalem and go into Judea, which was the next geographical section, and then to Samaria. See, as long as they were content, as long as, and you know, they, they, had, they had a great, the church exploded. The church exploded in its, in its, in its uh, growth, both spiritually as well as numerically. The church grew, and they were enjoying fellowship with each other. They were enjoying meals together. They were enjoying taking the Lord's Supper together. They were enjoying being taught together and teaching each other. They were, being, they were enjoying, enjoying prayer together. They were enjoying fellowship together. They didn't want to mess that up. So what did they do? They said, well, God said to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but... I don't think it's time yet to do that. And so God had to allow great persecution. And it was his method of fulfilling Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We see here the persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered That word scattered is a word from Greek, spero, which means to sow seed. To sow seed. You see, God, by dispersing the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, was sowing the seed of the gospel, his people, You see, where He plants you and where He plants me is where He wants us to bloom and to grow and to share His Word with those around us, wherever that may be. But I didn't want to come to Del Rio. 
you're here. I'm thankful you're here. It'd be mighty weird to preach to an empty room. So I'm glad you're here. Sowing seed. What seemed like defeat for the church was actually the beginning of a great victory. What seemed like a defeat for the church was actually the fountain of a great victory. I shared with you the words of Ray Stedman last week. The Sanhedrin silenced the voice that was upsetting a city. That's Stephen. But without realizing it, they were awakening a new voice that would upset an empire. That's Saul, who was later called what? Paul. Paul, later called Paul. Well, Stephen is buried by godly men. We don't know if they were part of the church or if it meant devout Jews, because that's what it usually meant. May be that some of the Jews who were devout, who were considering the gospel, may have understood the horrible mistake that had been made and they were sympathetic to the new, this new Christianity. And they buried Stephen. They mourned deeply, which many believe may imply that they had turned to faith in Messiah Jesus Christ. Well, Saul once again comes into the picture. He began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them into prison. The intensity of the destruction that he was reaping upon the church is shown in the fact that he did not go after only men, but he went after women as well, and they imprisoned both men and women. They were beaten, they lost their property, and they tried to make them blaspheme, and if they blasphemed, they would what? Be put to death. Boy, Saul is a hard case, isn't he? We don't have to worry about him. We'll never see him again. He won't get saved. Are you with me? Wrong. <laughs> Saul did get saved. Now, I can't imagine many people who would be more despicable than Saul. I can't imagine many people who deserve salvation less. I can't imagine many people who would be so hardened to the gospel that they would reject it. I can't imagine it. And yet there it is. What about that hard case you know? What about that hard case you know that you say, you know, I've tried to witness to, to them for years. I have prayed for them for years to come to faith in Jesus Christ and I don't see any advancement there. They'll never get saved. Well, believe me, folks, if Saul can get saved, the hard cases that you and I know can get saved. Don't quit. Don't quit praying for him. Don't quit witnessing as God gives you the opportunity. If anybody seemed to be irredeemable, if anybody seemed to be a hard case beyond help, beyond the reach of the gospel, it was Saul. And pretty soon in chapter 9, in about two weeks, 
we'll see his encounter on the road to Damascus where Jesus appears to him. Well, that's kind of the introduction to what's going on here. Then we read, starting in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down. Now, I find, by the way, I find that interesting, don't you? You have just been scattered out of Jerusalem. You've just been taken out of your comfort zone. You have just been made to leave a place you didn't want to leave. People around you are being arrested and beaten. Stephen was just killed. And what did you do when you were scattered out of Jerusalem? They preached the word everywhere they went. They didn't go and hide behind a rock somewhere. They didn't go and say, well, gee, I guess this is going to be too tough. I didn't expect this. They preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Whenever you see a phrase like that, the Christ, Christ is the Greek word Christos, which is equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means what? Messiah. Messiah. When they heard Christos, Christ, they thought Messiah. When we hear Christ, we think, oh, that's his last name. It's Jesus, that is God saves, Joshua, the Christ, the Messiah. In other words, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. By the way, the reason he went down, Samaria is north of Jerusalem. Why does it say he went down? The scripture has a problem. Why? It's downhill. <laughs> it's downhill. Topography, you go down. Even though you're going north, you go down to go to Samaria. That's why it says down. Philip went down to a city, and we're not told what city in Samaria, and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds, the Messiah, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all played, paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Lots of people came to faith. The message of the gospel was authenticated by the signs and the wonders that accompanied them. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Philip was the perfect choice for God to send. Why was he the perfect choice? He was one of the Grecian Jews whom the Aramaic Jews considered a bit worldly. He was a good choice to reach the Samaritans because he would be more accepting than the Aramaic Jews would have been. If you want to see the attitude of Jews toward, especially the Hebraic Jews, toward Samaritans, look at John 4, 9, Matthew 10, 5 and 6, Luke 9, verses 52 to 54. Remember at one point during his ministry with Jesus, John said to Jesus, Shall I call down fire upon that Samaritan village? Let's get rid of them. And in a few minutes you're going to see from Acts chapter 8 
that John was one of the two the Jerusalem church sent to verify what was going on in Samaria. What a change. See, gospel does that to you and me. Our former prejudices go away. He was a good one to send. He was God's choice for this assignment. And he preaches the word of God and many come to faith and his preaching is accompanied by signs and wonders. Now that's raised uh, all kinds of questions. Should we look for signs and wonders to accompany the preaching of the gospel today? There are a whole slew of churches based on that premise. Are they right? No, they're not right. And we'll see why in just a moment. Let me share. Let me remind you, we have, we have looked at this whole question of signs and wonders before, but let me remind you of the purpose for signs and wonders accompanying the gospel in the early church. Number one, it was to authenticate the message and the messengers. It was to authenticate the things that mark an apostle. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Signs and wonders marked an apostle. So it authenticated the message. It authenticated the messengers. Number two, signs and wonders uh, were not done by all of them. Only the apostles and a handful of others like Philip did signs and wonders. Only the apostles and a handful of others like Philip. So therefore, signs and wonders was something that was limited in scope. Limited in scope. Number three. Signs and wonders were limited in time. What do I mean by that? Uh, we don't have time to turn here, but write down Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where we are told that signs and wonders were done by the first generation of believers, but were not done by the second generation of believers. In other words, by the second generation of believers, signs and wonders were no longer being done. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. So signs and wonders were limited in scope, but they were also limited in time, limited to the first generation of believers. Number four, you can't trust signs and wonders. Why? They can be duplicated by Satan and his followers. They can be duplicated by Satan and his followers. We see that from the beginning of the Bible till the end of the Bible that Satan can mimic God's works. His power is limited. As we see with the magicians in Egypt in the book of Exodus. But Satan has his signs and wonders that his followers do. The, the fifth, and I think this is the, probably the most important point, is that faith based on signs is not a trustworthy faith. Faith based upon signs and wonders is not a trustworthy faith. Jesus spoke of that in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. John chapter 4, verse 48. You see, the Word of God trumps the miraculous. The Word of God trumps the miraculous. Jesus said, and I'm, I'm using the NLT here, I like the way they translated 
John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah, but Jesus didn't trust them. Because he knew what people were really like, no one needed to tell him, tell him about human nature. Faith based on signs is not trustworthy faith. F.F. F. Bruce, the great scholar, said this, Jesus himself, we are told in John 2, 23 and following, attached little value to faith that rested on miracles alone. Faith based on signs is not trustworthy faith. So there was a purpose for the signs and wonders. And the purpose was fulfilled early in the early church because even by the end of the book of Acts, signs and wonders have fallen away. Larry Richards gives us a great summary. The miracles that marked the ministry of Jesus continued in the early days of the church as signs authenticating those who bore the gospel message as God's spokesman. As Acts progresses, the role of the miraculous diminishes and the epistles nowhere suggest that Christian leaders or missionaries continue to perform them. In other words, by the end of the book of Acts and as the book of Acts progresses and when you throw in the epistles, and by the way, you don't have to take my word or Larry Richard's word for it, I challenge you to read the rest of Acts. And if you're really motivated, read all the epistles. And decide for yourself. As Acts progresses, he said, the role of the miraculous diminishes and the epistles nowhere suggest that Christian leaders or missionaries continued to perform them. Well, there was great joy in that city. Great joy because of the response to the gospel. You see, as one writer said, G. Campbell Morgan said, persecution has never hindered the preaching of the word. Persecution has never hindered the preaching of the word. We are less at danger from persecution than we are at accommodating our culture by fudging on what the word of God says. That's a greater danger. That's a greater danger. Well, Wearsby encourages us here. He says, never give up when the enemy seems to be winning. It may be your finest hour of victory. Now for some time, verse 9, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We're introduced to Simon, the magician. Simon, the magician. He did sorcery. He did magic, we're told in verse 11, verse 9. 
Sorcery was the ability to exercise control over nature and or people by means of, and underlying this in your thinking, by means of demonic power. In other words, Simon the magician was tapping into demonic power. He was using demonic power to do his great signs and wonders. That's why we must be careful. He was tapping into demonic power. Things that we should be careful about, especially to identify a counterfeit ministry. Number one, be wary of ministries which revolve around the spectacular. Be wary of ministries which revolve around the spectacular. Miracles, healings, signs, wonders, vision. Be wary of that kind of ministry. Number two, be wary of ministers, ministries, which uh, maybe ministers too, but ministries <laughs> which elevate a human being even above Jesus. There is a thought here that Simon proclaimed himself to be a messianic fulfillment. Number three, be wary of ministries that are not based upon solid doctrine. Beware of ministries that are not based upon solid doctrine. Well, verse 13 tells us that Oh, let me just share this with you. I'm, I'm running out of time, but uh, Ray Stedman said this. In Scripture, the term magic does not refer to sleight-of-hand tricks done before an audience. It applies, in, it applies instead to the occult practices of people who have somehow established a relationship with demonic powers and are being used by these powers to accomplish apparently, un, uh, apparently wholesome miracles which can at first be distinguished from the real thing, but they never last. In other words, Satan counterfeits the real thing. And we must be careful. What Simon did, he did with the help of demonic power. Now it says in verse 13 that Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles. So the question comes up, was he saved? Is that trying to tell us he was saved? Well, let me give you the quick answer here. Was he saved? I think probably not, but I don't know, and you don't know, and the scholars don't know. Only one person knows. Who's that? God. That's God who knows. Only God knows. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. Thank goodness for that. I see a lot of people running around today who think they know who's saved and who's not. But only God truly knows. So we don't know, was Simon saved? I think probably not is the right answer for a couple of reasons. Dr. Stanley Toussaint shares these reasons. Number one, the, in verse 13 where it says, Simon himself believed. The word believed in Greek is pastuo, but it doesn't always refer to saving faith. It's used in other contexts where it's not referring to saving faith. So it doesn't help us that it says he believed. 
the word can be used in context other than saving faith. Number two, we've already talked about John 2. Faith based upon signs is not trustworthy. Number three, Luke doesn't say ever that Simon received the Holy Spirit. Number four, Simon's real interest is in money and miraculous power. Number five, in verse 20, Peter said, may your money perish with you. Perish is a very strong word. It's related to the word perish used in John 3.16 of those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, the bottom line is only God knows those who are His. Only God knows those who are His. Well, then we read verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard about heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, that has, that has led to a lot of wrong doctrine. They call it second blessing theology that is that you don't uh, receive the holy spirit at the moment of salvation or you receive less of the holy spirit at the moment of salvation you later have some kind of an experience usually a crisis experience and you're baptized in the spirit and the evidence that you're baptized in the spirit is that you speak in tongues that's all built on the fact that the apostles came to Samaria and they did not receive the Holy Spirit till Peter and John laid their hands upon them. Now, there's a good reason for that. In fact, there are three good reasons for that. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, the fact that Peter and John came from Jerusalem and that the Samaritans didn't receive the Spirit until Peter and John laid hands on them. There are three reasons. Number one, it confirmed Philip's ministry among the Samaritans and authenticated the work to the Jerusalem apostles. This was big, folks. The Samaritans are coming to faith. This is big. So there had to be some way to authenticate for the Jerusalem apostles that the work that Philip done was right before God. And so God withholds the Holy Spirit until Peter and John lay their hands on them, on the Samaritans. The second reason for it is that it confirmed Philip's work to the Samaritans. It confirmed to the Samaritans that what Philip had done, what he had preached, was true. And the third and the most important reason that the Holy Spirit was withheld from these people is that because of who the Samaritans were, they were considered by the Jews to be racially impure, to be re religiously inferior. They had their own 
worship which was similar to Jewish worship because the Samaritans were half-Jews who intermarried with the pagan people that were brought into Jerusalem after the Assyrians conquered. And the Assyrians brought in pagan people into that area, into Judea, and they intermarried. The chances are that if the Spirit had been immediately given, if the Spirit had been immediately given to the Samaritans, they would have assumed that they had no connection to the Jerusalem church because they already didn't care for each other and they would have started a new branch of Christianity and there would have been two churches, a Jewish church in Jerusalem and a Samaritan church in Samaria. To prevent that from happening, God withholds the Holy Spirit from them until two representatives, Peter and John, two apostles, come to Samaria, and the moment they lay hands on the Samaritans, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. It was an example to the Samaritans that they belonged to the Jerusalem church. Otherwise, there would have been a schism, and there would have been two churches at this early stage. God prevented that from happening by Waiting. It wasn't because there's some kind of second blessing theology. Well, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of hands, he wanted to be able to do that. He said, I have money for you. I'll pay you to give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. That seems to me that perhaps he isn't genuine. <laughs> I don't know, you can decide. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon prayed, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And in the midst of that successful ministry, God takes Philip and moves him. Isn't that the way? Isn't that the way? Well, the stoning of Stephen led to a wider persecution of the church, but that resulted in the expansion of the church because persecuted, persecution leads to proclamation, which leads to progress as the gospel grows. God overruled evil for good. He'll do, he did that for them. He'll do that for you in your life and me in my life. I guarantee you that God will take you and me out of our comfort zones. But it's okay. It's okay. <coughs> and you and I must be alert to what is real and what is counterfeit. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you. Thank you for the challenge of your word. Lord, help us to focus on your word. It is central to our lives. Help us not to look for signs and wonders, but help us rather to spend more time in your word seeking to understand your will for our lives and for this world. Thank you that you take us out of our comfort zone, but you are there with us. And thank you that you can override the evil that comes against our lives and turn it for good. In Jesus' name, amen.